Welcome to another episode of Vonde Radio. Today it is a very great honour to be joined by Julia Maloney, who writes for Crisis Magazine and One Peter Five. She writes from the Pacific Northwest and she holds a bachelor's degree in English from Yale and a master's degree in English from Harvard. And what drew my attention to Julia's work is a number of articles she's written for Crisis Magazine. Um, including the man who was anti-pope, uh, the St. Gallen Mafia's LGBT youth synod, then haunted by McCarrick, and Francis allies reveal their plan for revolutionary change more recently. And these articles struck me as particularly engaging and erudite, with particularly penetrating analysis of current events in the church particularly on the this idea that has bewildered many faithful across the world, which is synodality. And Julia has written very cogently about how synodality, uh, permanent synodality, is a revolutionary dialectic that is employed by modernists within the church, really beginning with this person Carlo Cardinal Martini and that would be my first question to you Julia can you talk a little bit about the character and person of Cardinal Martini this man who called himself the anti-pope and that is uh, anti-a-n-t-e as opposed to a-n-t-i so antecedent pope how he seems now to reach beyond the grave to influence decisions in the church and the agenda that we see going forward reception. He attacked Humanae Vitae very publicly. Um, he had radical positions um, on same-sex unions. He endorsed them. He also went, at one point called legal abortion positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, this is the sort of person who was leading the St. Gallen Mafia. 
1999, he really, he really laid bare um, where he wanted the church to go and gave us a blueprint for the revolution. And um, it was a speech that he gave at the Synod of Bishops in 1999. And he said that he had a dream for the church. And he said that he wanted to get the church in a permanent synodal state. And there's a great article um, that Edward Penton did that explored what this mysterious word synodality means. And um, one of the most insightful points that this article gave is, is that synodality seems to be synonymous with permanent revolution. Um, so Martini wanted to get the church in a state of revolution with the synods, and he outlined specific knots that he wanted um, the church to address. And the knots were marriage, sexuality, penitential practice, the need to revive ecumenical hopes, the shortage of ordained ministers, the role of women in the church, and the relationship between civil law and moral law. And if you think about the synods that we've had so far, the family synods and the youth synod, um, the beginning of this blueprint maps onto it perfectly because um, communion for the divorced and remarried, um, was the, the main agenda at the family synods. And they tried to get the issue of homosexual couples in there. It didn't quite take. And, and um, that's something that I anticipate the youth synods um, post-synodal exhortation to really address. And um, it really, when you think about the, the other things that Martini names, um, one of them is the shortage of, of ordained ministers. And that is something that the Amazon Synod is going to be addressing, ordaining married men later this year. And um, I think for me, the most ominous part of all of this is the end game. So what, what does the St. Gallen Mafia want? Where do they want the church to finally go? And I think the key to it is this, idea of the relationship between civil law and moral law. That was the last knot that they described. Mm -hmm. And the relationship between civil law and moral laws, you just look at what the members of the St. Gallen Mafia stood for. And I already mentioned Martini said legal abortion was positive. Um, another member, Cardinal Zaniels, according to testimony, he um, actually told a king to um, sign an abortion bill in 1999. Um, we also have Daniels and Cardinal Casper, both on record um, hailing same-sex marriage laws. So this is, um, this is the end game. It's something that um, the late Cardinal Kafara described um, in one of his last speeches before his death. He described... Um, the plot to create a kind of anti-creation that was pillared on um, pillared on these principles. And I think that's exactly what the St. Gallen Mafia stands for and what the final goal is. Are, are you familiar with the Marxist theory of praxis? 
Yeah, um, yes, um, to a certain, to an extent that um, I, as an English major, um, have some basics of the philosophy. Um, right. Yes, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, well, um, you probably know then that, that Marx said uh, the philosophers have only interpreted wor the world in various ways. The point is to change it. In other words, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what, you know, the this, you know, ethereal magisterium thinks or or promulgates, um, you know, in some dusty chamber. What matters is the pastoral application um, and interpretation um, of that by the vast majority of the laity. So how how is that that uh, that uh, pastoral uh, method important to the the Sankt Gala Mafia because of course they can't actually change church teaching um, guarded as it is by the Holy Spirit but nevertheless mm -hmm. they can change people's perception of that teaching yeah I think um, your comment is really insightful um, that's a major point that the historian Robert um, Roberto de Matei often yes. makes which is that um, what matters is what you do, praxis, changing the world, exactly as you put it. And um, the idea of praxis and the, the pastoral implications of church teaching, um, that was something that the mafia definitely stressed. Um, I'm thinking in particular of Cardinal Murphy O'Connor. Um, he was good friends with um, then Cardinal Bergoglio. And Murphy O'Connor, in his memoirs um, called An English Spring, um, he said that he greatly admired Martini, but he thought of himself as a cautious reformer. And so Mar um, Murphy O'Connor said that what mattered was changing things incrementally and having a sort of gently leashed revolution mm -hmm. and I think his his stance on humanity vitae is really illuminating because Murphy O'Connor when it came out he explains in his memoirs that um, their struggle was to affirm church teaching affirm the doctrine the position of Rome but also find a way to make it um, pastorally sensitive and I think that's code for allowing people in practice to find certain situations that um, allegedly give them an exception to this moral norm. And that was part of the incremental steps because um, it's, yes, it's too audacious to come right out and try to change the doctrine. And what matters at the end of the day is um, what Murphy O'Connor said was doctrine changes indirectly mm -hmm. in an indirect way. And I think right there he was conceding that all of these changes to praxis, they are having doctrinal implications. Of course, we know that the doctrine that the church holds is not going to change. But we do know that um, in practice, it's going to feel weaker because of the changes in praxis. So yes, um, that is a a major um, theme in in the revolution. And you mentioned Murphy O'Connor, um, who's now deceased, but his his uh, press secretary Austin Ivory is uh, a really 
vocal member of of what's been called Team Francis. Um, And I'm interested to what extent Team Francis have a route into the Francis papacy itself, Um, how the Francis papacy uses these external figures to to deal with dissent to the agenda. Um, I mean, it seems that Antonio Spadaro, for example, is a key sort of nexus figure who gives these other these external figures their their kind of brief on on the messaging um yeah i think that um definitely father spadaro um and austin ivory and some other names have emerged as very important in the messaging of this pontificate i um i was researching some stuff on the youth synod today and um I ran across one of Father Spadaro's old tweets, and he talks about the church. He accuses critics of Francis um, of being rigid and mummified, wanting a mummified museum church, and he has this little figure of a mummy um, on his tweet. But um, that sort of that sort of messaging um, definitely it it's helpful insofar as it lays bare in a more concrete language where we're going, um, what the papacy wants. Father Spadaro, um, he's been called an oracle, so so to speak, by Sandro Magister, a very, very prominent um, Vaticanist. And I remember when I was researching the Youth Synod, um, I remember reading some of um, the statements that Father Spadaro had made, and they did seem very prophetic, about where the church was going, um, trying to trying to get away from ready-made answers on different topics, trying to um, increase the role of conscience in um, in the praxis of the church, and definitely Austin Ivory. Um, I highly recommend his book, The Great Reformer, because mm-hmm. it is an inside look at the St. Gallen Mafia and this papacy from someone who, as you said, was the former press secretary for Murphy O'Connor. And he gives details like um, sitting with Murphy O'Connor over gin and tonic and hearing um, hints about Bergoglio in the 2005 conclave. So um, these are crucial details that we get um, about um, not just where the papacy is going, but what happened in the past and how we can try to try to piece together um, some of what happened with the mafia. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you uh, you mentioned his book because um, he's working on a on a on a sequel, I believe, um, mm. for the last few years of Francis Pontificate, which uh, where where division and uh dissent has 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 really exploded um you know considering things like the the homosexual abuse crisis uh the china deal the vegano letter um it'll be an interesting it'll be interesting to read how he spins that because you're right mm-hmm. the the modernists don't want to push things too far too fast so that um sort of naive mainstream catholics um are tempted towards or to so that a schism or, or something like that happens um they want to maintain mm-hmm. this uh illusion of a, a hermeneutic of continuity um and 
you mentioned the the youth synod last year. Now, the commentariat had said that the the Sankt Gallen agenda there was to effectively normalise uh, homosexual relations, um, and uh, by all accounts, that agenda was thwarted. Um, could you give a little account of how that happened? Um, I mean, was it just the case that bishops were more wise to the uh, the methods used by by this uh, this group from the the family synods of fourteen and fifteen? Yeah, um, I think that definitely a big lesson was learned on all sides after um, the fam the infamous family synod interim report in two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm that talked about the precious support that you could find in same-sex relationships. Um, they, they dropped that report the very day that two Italian political parties backed homosexual unions. And um, they were no forced... In the, yeah, and they were forced in the press conference to, to disclose basically who wrote those paragraphs. And it was Archbishop Bruno Forte, who is a leading disciple of Martini. So they they tried to overplay their hand um, in that first synod. They revealed what the final um, outcome is supposed to be. They revealed that communion for the divorced and remarried is just this Trojan horse for for the issue of homosexual couples. Um, Now, definitely the next synod, um, Cardinal Casper, also of the St. Gallen Mafia, he said that he tried to push the issue of homosexuality and it didn't take. Um, and he he told um, Frederick Martel, the the author of a controversial new book um, on homosexuality in the Vatican, but um, Martel reports that Casper said that um, Pope Francis has a small step strategy and it's the right strategy, and Francis has been pushing the debate on homosexuality further. So the Youth Synod, I think, um, as, a, as a young person myself, I, I think that it was an attempt to use young people, to manipulate and exploit young people, um, to try to change teaching on this issue. And we have... Um, we have a book by Martini himself called Night Conversations. And the entire premise of the book is um, that it's answering questions from young people. Mm. And Martini, he paints you know, this, this picture of young people as these revolutionaries, these prophets who um, are leftists and want to change the church's teaching on sexuality, um, all of this. And um, if you look at the documents of of the Youth Synod, you see um, Martini's voice in them. You see these allusions to young people as prophets. But that was how it was supposed to go. Um, I think the people who were running the Synod, including the the Vice President of the Martini Foundation, Giacomo Costa, who was one of the special secretaries. SJ. um, Yes, exactly. Um, They... They tried to, again, I think they overplayed their hand in the instrumentum laboris because they used the ideological term LGBT. There was a lot of pushback against that. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Archbishop uh, Chaput, he gave a really strong intervention at the opening of the Youth Synod saying that LGBT does not belong in church documents. Um, so you did have a lot of strong responses from people like Chaput, Cardinal Sarah, um, a lot of the African cardinals. Um, but I think what that, what that did was it made the revolution um, become more sub subterranean, more, more stealthy. Um, there, there's been some good work done, especially by um, LifeSite News, about how they were trying to smuggle in the LGBT acronym. And one of the, um, one of the most potent moves that they made is they inserted this paragraph in the final document saying that basically the final document of the Youth Synod and the Instrumentum Laboris need to be read together. Hmm. And that one statement, which unfortunately was approved by the necessary majority, um, that essentially baptizes the Instrumentum Laboris which uses this controversial language, which opens up the question of what, what to propose to same-sex couples. So I think that, um, I think that the, the battle here is, is very real, and um, it's just become more, more kind of disguised, more um, content to go by that small-step strategy. Yeah, indeed, and we've obviously got the post-synodal exhortation um coming out in a ma in a matter of weeks i believe so yeah we're, we're not out of the woods yet that could contain all sorts of surprises mm -hmm. sorry do you want to say something um yeah um i think that um i just wanted to to add that um i think that um, no, I think I, sorry, I think I, I lost my train of thought. I apologize. That's okay. That's fine. Um, Pope Benedict, uh, the 16th, um, said he started contemplating his, his, uh, abdication several months before he announced it. Um, and that would put it right after Martini's death. And as some have said, Casper's sort of ascension to the top of the Sancta Garland Mafia, um, and, uh, again, if you can, if you can, uh, see Martini's fingerprints over a lot of the, the, the methodology, the language, um, that, that even the theology that we're seeing, um, you can also, uh, see Casper's, uh, uh, fingerprints all over it. Um, I think particularly when you write about in, uh, the uh, Evangelii Gaudium, Pope Francis' vision of a, a sort of polyhedronal church, which mm -hmm. uh, is a is a particularly kind of uh, ambiguous term. Um, but Cardinal Casper wrote a lot on the theology and praxis of the bishop's office, and this is where he really clashed with then Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, but uh, I just I just quote here. Um, from from the work Walter Casper on the theology and praxis of the bishop's office. Um, he quotes uh, St. John Paul II 
um, issuing a call for practical suggestions in his encyclical Et Unum Sint on how the Petrine ministry should be exercised. Such a, ga- a dialogue, Casper suggests, quote, would make sense only if it led to a new historical formation of the office of Peter. A new form would be similar to that which the office of Peter had in the first thousand years, but in a form appropriate to the differences in historical periods and the relationships of the various churches. End quote. So this appears to point to an exercise of the Petrine function, which is more participatory in style, involving the bishops of the world, so hence the synods. Um, and uh, the Casper does call on the, the kind of uh, different transformations or different epochs of the Petrine office. Um, and he says, one must indeed say that in the present form of its exercise, the Petrine ministry has far from completely exhausted its ecumenical possibilities. So what's your current reading on Cardinal Casper's um, uh, influence in the in the Francis pontificate? Uh, you mentioned Martel's interview where um, Casper says that uh, his own attempts to change language in the family synod were stymied. And actually it was the more gradualist approach of Pope Francis meant talking about individuals, emphasizing individual experience that blur moved the lines as he said yeah um i'm really glad that you you pointed to casper's fingerprints so to speak Mm. because um casper's work gives us another important blueprint for the revolution and i'm thinking specifically of um, a work he did on martin luther as a as an ecumenical figure. Um, it's, it's a very strange work, um, but essentially it um, valorizes Martin Luther and imagines this future state of the church where the church will, so to speak, be deconfessionalized and it will overcome sort of those Catholic markers that seem to be accidents of history, that seem to not be um, conducive to ecumenical unity. And there, there was a really insightful article that Sandro Magister posted about a year ago um, by a professor on this very book. And the professor talks about how the revolution um, really is promoting this deconfessionalization because if you look at the family synods and communion for the divorced and remarried um, that weakens indissoluble marriage the holy eucharist Um, if you look at the way that francis is exercising the um, the petrine ministry um, this article talks about how that remark who am i to judge um, just gives you a radical kind of re reevaluation of who the Pope is and what his authority is. Um, so I think that I think that we we're in very ominous territory um, since Cardinal Casper and Cardinal Martini are two of the great architects for this pontificate. And um, there there's also some great work that I believe Thomas Stark did on Cardinal Casper, mm. talking about the the modernist roots of Casper's thought, and essentially the idea that um, Casper seems to be very 
arrested by history, historicism, and this idea that um, God can't be, in his words, an enemy of the new. And this maps onto Martini's phrase um, that God, that there are surprises from the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's where we get this idea from Pope Francis that we have a God of surprises that we are dealing with. And I think that, um, yeah, at the end of the day, this, this just goes back to modernism and the idea that um, the church's dogmas can evolve, the idea that um, we've outgrown some of the different structures of the church, some of the different rules, the, the mor- morality, um, all of it, it, it goes back to modernism. Yeah, I just want to uh, read a little quote from from Cardinal Casper. He says, um, it, We must resist this God, also for God's sake. He is not the true God at all, but rather a wretched idol. For a God who is not himself history is a finite God. If we call such a being God, then for the sake of the absolute we must become absolute atheists. Such a God springs from a rigid world view. He is the guarantor of the status quo and the enemy of the new. So so perhaps that was the quote to which you referred, but I can't think of a, a kind of better uh, uh, ex- explication of the, the heresy of modernism in a nutshell, really. Um, yeah, yeah, that's an extremely startling quotation. Um, it's something that more people um, should be aware of. Um, I think that... Uh, I remember dealing with that with that quotation in um, in an article about Casper, and the article was called Protestantism, Modernism, Atheism, mm. and it really goes back to this um, this idea that um, Pope Saint Pius X had that first you had Protestantism, and that led to modernism, and at the end of the day you end up in atheism. And I think that this this quotation from Cardinal Casper where you either have to have the God of surprises or you need to end up in atheism, um, it, it perfectly vindicates this, this quote, this prophetic insight that Pope St. Pius X had about where we would be headed if the modernists triumphed. Absolutely. Um, and sure enough, you have uh, Cardinal Marx um, talking about the latest German bishop synod and appointing appointing uh, is it Archbishop Boda to to talk, to examine specifically questions of uh, sexuality and uh, I believe they will report in September. Um, do you do you kind of anticipate um, <laughs> what, what, what do you anticipate coming out of that? Um, I anticipate more revolution. I anticipate that being a perfect illustration of that idea of permanent synodality being permanent revolution. Somewhere revolution is happening. It's happening in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely when Amoris Laetitia um, came out, you saw that principle in practice because some regions stayed faithful and other regions cried revolution, and um, altogether the, the sum effect of that is to foment a kind of disobedience, a kind of rebellion, and I think that 
there, there was some insightful work that, um, again, Edward Penton had done on the German bishops and their relationship to this papacy. And he reported um, maybe last year that the German bishops were getting antsy and they thought that the revolution wasn't having, happening fast enough. And so they were pressuring Francis to move forward on certain items. And I think that the fact that they are going forward with this um, synodal event is is a very, very troubling sign of what's to come. And um, you're seeing, you know, growing um, resistance to this uh, this revolutionary process from, uh, you know, so-called conservative uh, prelates and um, to have, you know, cardinals publicly rebuking each other in the in the press um, is quite extraordinary, really. But it's the culmination, many would say, of the the wider crisis the church has been in ever since or at least since the uh, Second Vatican Council. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Thomas Pink, Dr. Thomas um, Pink. Not, not, not so much. Okay, well, he did a very um, interesting interview with uh, the National Catholic Register um, and on the theology of baptism as the crisis in the church being a crisis of the theology of baptism. And essentially what he said is that the, the, there's, there's a... A dichotomy there's a there's a dissonance between the magisterium unchanging immutable um, uh, and then the official theology which is the theology that the church has at any given moment in history to explain its magisterial teaching to the world and apply it to the world um, and there are there you know this gap um, can can be quite small or it can be quite large depending on the church's kind of prudential judgment about how to um exercise its uh its spiritual uh and indeed temporal power and he says that um the 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 change that's happened in baptism is that the church no longer believes that um that an unconverted, unbaptized person is under the dominion of the devil. If we consider the teachings of the 19th century popes, we'll inevitably be in a perpetual spiritual conflict with the church, right? Because it's, it's under the dominion of Satan. And this change has been accentuated by the change in the, the rite of baptism, where the old rite um, actually starts with an exorcism um, very explicitly the child is actually saved from from satan um, and made obviously an adopted child of the father and uh, this this change has gradually come about but 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 has overtaken now pretty much the entire hierarchy uh, this theology um, so that when the the world as Pius IX predicted it would in Quantacura, by separating itself from the church, as like a body separating itself from its soul, it will die. And so the, 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 the world will, the states will 
become more and more um, in the hands of the devil because it's severed from the mediation of grace, sanctifying grace, and the gap between the church's uh, teaching and indeed the natural law, and then the the world will will grow uh, ever more vast, and that's the that's what we've seen. But because the theology has changed, um, and the church looks to harmonise its relationship with the world and dialogue with the world um, under the influence of people like Jack Moritan who said that the the world has reached a level of um, accordance with the natural law um, so that yes unity of church and state was the right thing in medieval times but now in modernity the, the church needn't advocate that and uh, so what we have now is a situation where as the the world go distances itself further and further from the gospel the church is unable to admit that the problem is with the world in its unconverted state and therefore sees the problem with itself and constantly looks to itself and problems with its own language with its own theology with its own teaching and must remove those obstacles in order to reharmonize um, its relationship with the 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 secular world and i think that's what these these liberal modernists think it, it comes down to a crisis in the sacraments essentially mm. yeah i i think that's a really insightful context to the current crisis yeah i've done quite um, a poor job of explaining it but i'll send you the article um after this and you can have a read yeah, um, I think that, that that relationship that you're talking about between the church and the world um, and this kind of self-questioning, self-doubt that the church is going through right now, um, I think that definitely as we, as we look at the historical issue of the St. Gallen Mafia, it inevitably leads us further back to the, the crisis point of um, the Vatican Second Vatican Council and um, the, the spirit of Vatican II people that we had there. Um, one person that it specifically leads us back to, one person that it specifically leads us back to is Karl Rahner. Mm-hmm. And the historian Roberto de Mattei has actually um, said in a certain interview that Pope Francis's father is Martini, but his grandfather is Karl Rahner. And um, this sort of optimism that you have from Rahner about the world and trying to make the church the world, trying to dissolve um, these different aspects of the church, um, that was something that you really, you see the imprint of that in Martini's thought. And the the so-called open church that he wanted um, Roberto de Mattei has, has talked very, very cogently about how um, essentially this open church, it wanted to open the doors of salvation to everyone, including if you, if you don't observe Catholic morality, if you aren't a Catholic, just to um, essentially accept the world as it is. And that's something that you see in Martini and definitely the, I would say, the outgoing church of Pope Francis. Um, It's just another version of the open church 
of Martini. And um, it is a, an accommodation with the world in, in a lot of senses. Yeah. Well, Pink, Pink talks about Rana and his idea of the anonymous Christian that the mm-hmm. the merits of Christ's sacrifice have been given to all people in all time and the church the purpose of the church is is merely um a, a communal gathering for those who want to participate in a sign of that salvation that's already achieved so the sacraments become a theater theater of salvation you know they're just they're just illustrating something that's already happened mm. right so yeah uh thought i'd relate that um yeah back to 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 baptism because i mean you know fundamentally it it's a different religion isn't it i mean they they don't have the same understanding of grace and salvation and the divine institution of the church that uh that that has been held by the church you know for for her entire uh history yeah yeah i think that um again more more very insightful points about how the very the very foundations of the modernists and um the rest of the church are are diametrically opposed and um i think that there was a, a really great article that LifeSite News did with um, an interview with Claudio Pierantoni. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. And um, he, he basically said that Amoris Laetitia and this idea of communion for the divorced and remarried, um, it seemed like that was the sole issue that it was dealing with. But the premises that they needed to invoke to get to that point um, it exposed that their overall paradigm is a modernist paradigm. Mm-hmm. And um, definitely if you start with this modernist idea that um, God somehow identifies himself with creation, and so the magisterium doesn't have to be logically coherent with the magisterium of the past, um, you get this kind of, you get this, um, he compared it, I think, to kind of a form of insanity where logic doesn't hold anymore, where um, there can be contradictions um, because of this this idea that there's there's this evolution that is happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I I would like to just quickly get your thoughts on the the most um, explosive. Uh, matter in the church over the last two years which has been the homosexual the has been has been a sexual that was a freudian slip a sexual abuse scandal um and the the fall of mccarrick um uh who who was a member of the saint gala mafia is that right um i'm not sure most people don't count him as an actual member but definitely um it's understood that he According to his own testimony, collab, you know, collab. According to his own testimony, collab, you know, collaborated mm. with them insofar as he he um, talked to Bergoglio about about becoming pope. And I don't know if you've heard the um, the uh, testimony of James Grine, who was one of his, mm-hmm. the abuse victims. But he he mentions how McCarrick would go to Sankt Gallen. 
many years before the the meetings mm -hmm. actually began. Um, and I, I believe that the journalist Dr. Taylor Marshall is uh, mm -hmm. is writing a book that uh, puts puts these uh, pieces together. So that that should be very interesting. But in a sense, the the, the cat's sort of out the bag now because you have even uh, mainstream reporters like CNN um, asking Cardinal Cupich about the connection between homosexuality in the priesthood and the ongoing uh, the the un uncovering of abuse within the church and and consciousness amongst the laity about this this uh, development the the prevalence of uh, abuse of adolescent boys in particular is is growing all the time so um how how do you see their their the the methodology for dealing with the abuse scandals evolving or or carrying on um i think that again if we look at at what martini has said about the sexual abuse crisis before um he died he he said that the church needed to change its teaching on sexuality and that that was basically um, causing causing the issues with sexual abuse. And we see similar lines from the German bishops that um, basically the, the church is what has to change and things like celibacy have to change. Um, I think that uh, definitely it's, it's been very audacious that um, when you have this crisis of overwhelmingly homosexual predation on the young, um, both minors and adults, um, the fact that the, the different synods and different revolutionaries would continue to push the revolution on homosexuality at the, mm -hmm. at the very same moment, um, it, it shows this, this incredible audacity, but it's, it's the same... Um, it's the same line that um, that the world accepts, which is that um, that the church needs to revolutionize its teachings. The problem is with the church, and um, somehow um, a sexual abuse crisis can be exploited to create a revolution. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting or sobering to think that this crisis, the the I mean, people were talking about the homosexual nature of abuse. Um, years ago, I'm thinking of Randy Engel and one or two others, um, but it but it nevertheless wasn't widely known. But it's emerged at precisely the time um, that that dealing with it, um, as in you know really purging um, predatory priests, would would bring down the fury of the of the secular world. Whereas if this had emerged, say I don't know, ten twenty years ago, before this um exaltation of of homosexuality across the the modern world then um the church might have been able to actually clamp down on it without uh provoking that kind of reaction whereas now the the church is in a set, is, is essentially almost i mean she she can and should obviously do something about it but i i'm sure that for for a lot of um uh clerics that's a consideration that uh it, it would it would the optics would look so bad in the in the world that's kind of you know turned rainbow mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that the fact that um, I think more needs to be made of the fact that McCarrick, um, he was not just doing these horrible abuses privately. Um, he was also promoting different forms of, of revolution and subversion um, in public. I think it's um, important that he, shortly after Pope Francis um, became Pope, McCarrick um, talked about how he didn't have a problem with same-sex civil unions. And he garnered, you know, he garnered favor by accommodating himself to the world mm. completely. And um, that was something I think that protected him for a long time. We have different stories about people knowing about him and um, potentially killing stories because it would, it would be a bad narrative um, to look at someone who was practicing this, this kind of sexual predation. But I'd like to just ask one final question, um, and that's regarding another track of the uh, of the current Vatican agenda, which is um, fixation on climate change and cooperation with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, this is uh, marvelously explained in your article, "Population Control Advocates Hobnob at the Vatican," um, and. Yeah, you talk about um, the rampant kind of ambiguity and, and uh, heterodoxy that takes place at these gatherings. Um, for example, Bishop Marcello Sanchez Sorondo said that uh, we don't know exactly what is the doctrine of the church about fecundity, only some part of it. So it's, uh, you know, part of this constant sort of fragmenting and blurring of of magisterial teaching. Um, what, what do you see um, are recent developments in the, the, the supposed alignment between the church's authorities and the anti-life agenda of the uh, sustainable development goals of the UN? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, a, it's an extremely um, ominous issue that we need to continually bring back to mind. Um, that that population um, control uh, issue that, that happened in previous years, that conference, um, one of the attendees was John Bongartz from the, I believe, the Population Council. And um, I, I listened to his speech that he gave where he basically touted contraception as um, something that is useful. Um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, in his idea. Um, John Bongartz, he, he basically gave another version of that talk in a paper that he did that, that I forget which year he did it, but he wanted universal access to contraception in 10 years. And of course, the, the, the UN agenda with the Sustainable Development Goals, um, it's for the year 2030. And um, people like Jeffrey Sachs, who um, has promoted abortion before, are coming to the Vatican. And I've listened to some of these talks where you have Sachs talking to young people, saying they have 10 years or 13 years or, <laughs> or whatever to end poverty and, and um, get the goals developed. So this is something, again, where we, we see 
in our in our mind kind of a long stretch of about um, uh, of about a, a little over a decade left to implement those goals. And um, recently, I did some more research on Cardinal Perelin, who is often touted as the likely successor to Pope Francis. And um, he helped present a book that was entitled The Birth of an Encyclical, and it was looking back at Humanae Vitae in light of the Vatican archives. And um, this book essentially gives a pastoral slant to Humanae Vitae um, in the same way that we were discussing before, where the doctrine can remain untouched, but in practice we have to be compassionate with, with everyone who descends from it. And um, Perelin, in his own remarks, really emphasized this um, sort of pastoral aspect to Humanae Vitae. And so I think that definitely there is an agenda to um, subvert Humanae Vitae and thereby get the church on board with the sustainable development goals, which do, um, as, as pro-life leaders have warned, have language that is really coded language for universal access to contraception and abortion. Yeah. And then, obviously, once you've separated the, the unitive and procreative aspects of the conjugal act, um, everything else from the sexual revolution just follows um, mm -hmm. sure as day after that. I, I I don't know if you've heard of the philosopher Augusto del Noce, in Italian. No. He said, after the negation of transcendence, politics itself becomes the transcendental horizon, and ethics, like truth, is subsumed under the form of war. So he would call our society a, a totalitarian one, um, because his definition of a totalitarian society is where culture, which would include ethics in his definition, is subordinated to politics. And um, this sort of fixation by the Vatican on sort of worldly issues, you know, not that there isn't a preferential option for the poor or anything else like that, but but this this fixation to the exclusion of theology and philosophy... Um, this employment of of economics, of psycho psychology, of uh, science, um, to the to the negation of her own native tongues of of philosophy and theology, and metaphysics. It's kind of bespeaks a church that uh, has lost confidence in its own mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that. That, that's a great point, and that, that quotation is very, very thought-provoking. Um, it reminds me of something that um, Venerable Fulton Sheen once said, and he said that, um, he, and he said that, um, he said that theology becomes politics for many people, mm -hmm. um, and he likened it to the third temptation of Christ, where Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he actually, in, in one of his talks, he said that this would be the great temptation for the church coming up, that it would be tempted exactly as Christ was tempted. And I definitely, I see, I see that um, most conspicuously in this 2030 agenda. Yeah. 
Um, Pater Edmund Waldstein of the Josias website uh, and podcast uh, Cistercian um, has got a very interesting kind of esoteric integralist theory. And to to um, draw from Pope Leo XIII's hylomorphic analogy in Immortali Dei about the church corresponding to the soul and the state of the body. Part of Waldstein describes how the church separated from the state is analogous to the separation of body and soul, which equals death. But mm-hmm. we learn in Catholic theology that before, after the particular judgment and before the, the resurrection of the dead, our souls, though they're in purgatory or, or um, the beatific vision, still long for our body. Mm-hmm. And so he says that in, analogically the church separated from the state is still longing for its body. So the body's corrupt, it's just rotting. And that's what's happening to the secular world. But the, 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 the church the, is, is longing for its corporeality, it, its, its actual, uh, its temporal presence. And so that's why she, she constantly just talks about money and economics and science and as i said all these um these secondary concerns because she no longer has the uh the union with the state with her body to actually affect sanctification of the the temporal sphere yeah that's that's a really really interesting insight um the the longing for the body um yeah, I I like that very much. I, I would I'm interested though how you actually got into um, doing your own independent research on developments in the church. Was that mm-hmm. just? Um... I I got into it because um, I, I had originally sort of been a I had been a fan of Pope Francis and had read a lot of. Um, very, very laudatory things about him, and I wasn't really following the church very closely. And he he began to say increasingly disturbing things. And there was one point where he um, he said that um, many marriages um, are potentially invalid, and um, it really it really disturbed me. And I felt that I needed to say something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I submitted an anom- anonymous article to Crisis um, because I was, I was kind of afraid of sticking my neck out. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it just turned out that um, then I started writing, you know, under my full name. And kind of as a writer, I've learned to, to try to not be afraid to say things that, you know, may be uncomfortable. I just I try to tell it like i see it amen i think for me my francis moment was um was well one of them was when he said um emma benino uh the italian uh abortion activist, um mm-hmm. an actual abortionist i believe as well mm-hmm. uh was one of italy's uh forgotten greats um mm-hmm. and i just i found that just so depressing and demoralizing um yeah and uh <laughs> you know, it it's it, it's uh yeah it's a, it's a, it's a kind of wake up call but it i really i i do agree with what um hillary white says is it hillary white yeah she says that um the remnant 
that uh, Pope Francis is a blessing from God. And I, I think that's the case because he is waking up so many Catholics, uh, particularly mm -hmm. sort of conservative Catholics, to the larger crisis in the church. Um, mm -hmm. And indeed, she says the church could not have survived another conservative papacy because that conservatism maintains the illusion that tradition and novelty can be contained in the same vessel, whereas in fact they're antithetical. This this truce post-Vatican II that the church keeps the same teachings but doesn't actually teach them is, okay. is impossible to maintain and is, of course, breaking apart right now. And ultimately, that's, that's, a, that's a grace from God. Um, mm -hmm. And it may well be, you know, as that famous Ratzinger interview says, that we're heading towards like a smaller, uh, smaller, holier church. But, you know, that's that's what the world needs, I think. That's what mm -hmm. our souls need. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think that um, I was just I was listening to um, I was watching one of the the YouTube videos of Dr. Taylor Marshall recently oh, right. <laughs> and um, the uh, Dr. Marshall and Timothy Gordon and they were talking about, you know, certain issues um, in, in prior pontificates such as the CC meeting mm -hmm. and this, this sort of territory, you know, there was a time when it was not really safe to talk about things like that, not really safe to criticize Exactly. Uh, very much if you're in the conservative camp and now we can have genuine discussions where we can identify what has been positive in previous pontificates and identify um, what the problematic aspects are so that we can we can actually be purified as as you've explained yeah no that, I, I totally agree um, Henry Sear who wrote the dictator pope um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read his previous book Phoenix from the Ashes Part of it, I've read parts. That's a very good book. If I if I want to give a one book summary um, to to inform you know a Catholic, um, that's that's usually what I recommend because yeah, and particularly the the last chapter about the restoration of tradition, where he identifies mm -hmm. I think four or five phases. Um, the first is Paul the, is is the is the kind of attempt to eradicate tradition, uh, and mm -hmm. that was sort of the seventies Paul the sixth. Then there's the second phase, which is this sort of hermeneutic of continuity, this, as I say, this um, this attempt to contain traditional novelty together and say that they they're perfectly harmonious, um, and then the third is 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 what we're in now, which is um, you know open uh, dissent, well, open criticism of the the spirit of Vatican II developments, etc. Um, and also, you know, the 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 strengthening the the uh, what is it called the coalescence of tradition, um, which obviously mm -hmm. started with uh, moto proprio with the Samorum Pontificum. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like there's there's green shoots kind of um, if you look closely. All right, well, um, thank you very much, Julia. I always really look forward to reading your articles. I know that I know they're going to be particularly. Uh, interesting and, and and insightful and entertaining as well so thank you for that thank you and thank you so much for having me um i Pleasure. i thought this was a, a really it was really fun for me to converse with you and you obviously you know you follow things with the church and the church's history and tradition really closely so um it was really a pleasure to to get to talk out some of these things with you thank you likewise julian all right okay. 
God bless. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.